0: Hi, this
1: is Ben Smith. I'm a photographer, and this is my podcast, A Small Voice Conversations with Photographers. Thanks for listening. Hello, people. Ben here, A Small Voice Conversations with Photographers. ...is the podcast that you're listening to. What a stupid way to say it. What am I talking about? You know what I mean. This is a small voice conversation with photographers. This is episode 174, if I'm not wrong. And uh, I'm super happy to say that my guest this week... ...is the extremely esteemed and respected and uh, renowned... ...landscape photographer, Jem Southern, one of our finest. So I'm going to introduce Jem properly in a minute. And please bear with me for a few important announcements... Little bit of sponsorship because these lovely sponsors are the people who are keeping the show on the road. I'm very happy to say yet again that this episode of Small Voice is sponsored by the renowned cutting edge photography journal Hotshoe International. Based in London and distributed worldwide, Hotshoe Magazine is a truly independent publication which has been consistently serving a wide readership of creatively minded individuals since 1977. Beautifully produced and collectible, each issue focuses on a movement, person, or moment in the photographic canon, ranging from New York street photography to a comprehensive retrospective of the late artist Chris Killip in the current issue, including previously unpublished images. The fabulous Chris Killip, obviously, previously of this parish. Uh, I always never hesitate to mention that Chris did the podcast a few years back, so you can still go and find that episode. Hotshoes' goal is to question, inform and inspire through an array of different perspectives. Portfolios regularly include influential photographers such as Mark Steinmeck's, Anna Fox, Sunil Gupta and Todd Heido, as well as Crude Metaphors, a prominent and celebrated section of the magazine since 2005, which brings together photography and fiction writing, pairing a photographer and a writer to produce a narrative written in response to a chosen series of images. Hotshu is excited to announce that the 200-page spring issue, number 207, will explore photography from West Africa, including the work and voices of artists such as Leonce Raphael Aguadjelu, Rachida Bessiriu, And So go to hotshoemagazine.com, have a look around, check out previous issues and start your subscription for 2022. Hotshoe are offering small voice listeners who sign up within the next 30 days an exclusive 10% discount on subscriptions if you use the offer code smallvoice10 at checkout. So go to hotshoemagazine.com. Okay, so don't forget to sign up as a member for £5 a month at pod.fan, where for that money you can access... Special exclusive subscriber only content, which uh, features all kinds of good stuff, including check-ins from previous guests. By the way, members, I'm very excited to announce that I do have a check-in for you on the next episode. Yes, indeed. I know I have a check-in because it's already done. It's in the can. And I might as well tell you now that check-in is with the fantastic Rhiannon Adam. Uh, Rhiannon's brilliant episode, which a lot of you will remember uh, episode 79 is a, a bit of a classic. I hope most of you have listened to it. If you're a member and you haven't listened to it, then you really should go and listen to it. So should everyone else because um, it's, there, it's there on the free feed for everybody. But Rhiannon uh, is going to do a check-in on the next member-only special. The book of the work that she talked about extensively is finally coming out, and that is, of course, the Pitcairn work. And, um, yeah, I won't say any more except to have a listen and you'll find out all about it on the next member only episode. Go and join up at pod.fan. If you want a new website, tell me I'll build you one with Squarespace and leave me a review on iTunes or Apple Podcasts, as it is now. Uh, so that other people may find this fantastic podcast. So, as always, this episode is also sponsored by the Charcoal Book Club, the monthly subscription service for photo book enthusiasts that brings essential, limited edition and hard-to-find photobooks to your doorstep. Working with the most respected names in contemporary photography, Charcoal Book Club selects and delivers essential photobooks to a worldwide community of collectors, whether they be long-time enthusiasts with a stock library or novices just beginning to build their collection. Join up as a member at charcoalbookclub.com and each month you'll receive a new museum-quality first-edition monograph to add to your shelves, hand by Charcoal's team of expert curators and signed by the artist, along with a signed note card and an exclusive print. Sometimes the book of the month will be a classic title every bibliophile should own, and other times it will be a new release from an emerging artist who's poised to make big waves. They offer free shipping to the UK, Canada and the US, and members also get exclusive perks such as signed copies, access to rare titles, members-only pricing in Charcoal's online bookstore and more. All of which makes the Charcoal Book Club the best, easiest and most exciting way to start Stay up to date with essential work in contemporary photography, as most of you will already know. Just looking at the forthcoming book of the month, Keep an Eye Shut by Hanayo. Now, that is Hanayo Nakajima, the Japanese photographer, artist, musician, and model. And this is a book which summarizes 30 years of her activities. Looks good, looks interesting. Don't know anything about Hanayo Nakajima, but I certainly will by the time that book arrives, or at least after it's arisen. A riven arrived, you know what I'm saying. That's the point about being a charcoal Book Club member. So one more thing to mention uh, before I introduce Jem Southern, and that's a little shout-out to the various photographers from all over the world who are out in Ukraine covering the conflict there, all the photojournalist people, just want to shout out to them and say that, you know, kind of thinking about them to some extent. They're there of their own free volition, of course. And we're all thinking about the Ukrainians themselves, obviously. But, you know, this is a photography podcast. So just a quick shout out to some of the previous guests and friends of the podcast. Lindsay Dario of course, is out there. Ron Haviv is out there as usual. Uh, John Stammeyer, Anastasia Taylor-Lind, I think, is out there all previously of this parish. Mark Neville, of course, now lives there, and so is there. And if you want to check out Mark's initiative, Stop Tanks with Books, at Stop Tanks with Books, I think, or go to Mark Neville's Instagram page, and uh, you'll find it. Um, I think it's probably a hashtag, but uh, it's certainly on his website, uh, information about Stop Tanks with Books. So, Jem Southam... Born in Bristol in 1950, Jem Southern is one of the UK's most renowned landscape photographers, possibly the most renowned, working predominantly in the southwest of England where he lives. Jem's richly detailed works document subtle changes and transitions within the landscape, allowing him to explore cycles of life and death, decay and renewal through spring and winter, and also to reveal the subtlest of human interventions in the natural landscape. His work is characterized by its balance of poetry and lyricism within documentary practice and combines topographical observation with other references personal, cultural, political, scientific, literary, and psychological. Jem's working method combines the predetermined and the intuitive, and seen together his series suggest the forging of pathways towards visual and intellectual resolution. I hope that makes sense to some of you. I I kind of nicked that bio. I I combined a couple of different bios to try and create a really kind of uber bio. Um, So this is that bio. I hope Jem's happy with it. Um, I think you're getting the gist. But Jem has had solo exhibitions at the Photographer's Gallery London, Tate St Ives Cornwall and the Victorian Albert Museum in London. And his work is held in many important collections, both in the UK and internationally. Until his retirement from teaching three years ago, Jen was Professor of Photography at the University of Plymouth. At least I think it's fair to say he's retired. I'm I'm pretty sure that's uh, what he told me before we started uh, recording at the beginning of the chat, but I hope I apologise if I got that wrong. He's certainly not uh, teaching there at the moment. Uh, Yeah, I'm pretty sure he's finished. Anyway, at the University of Plymouth, and he is represented by the Huxley Parlour Gallery here in London. Funnily enough, a place I'm going to this very evening because... uh, other friend of the podcast and obviously old friend of mine, Vanessa Winship has an exhibition there which opens this evening or is being uh, previewed this evening. So I'm going to go down and uh, have a look at that and uh, say hi to Vanessa. Uh, That is on if you're in London uh, until I think the 14th of April. So from tomorrow or from today, if you're listening on Wednesday, 16th of March through to 14th of April, Um, that is a selection of new work from Vanessa and the first show she's had in the UK since I think her Barbican show which some of you might remember Uh, you will have heard me and Ness walking around that show and uh, she talked to me all about some of the images and we put that out as a special podcast episode so as it happens Vanessa is a big fan of Jem Southern's work and uh, I told her that I'd spoken to him after I'd spoken to him and she said oh did you talk about the moth? And I was like, no, I didn't talk about the moth, which is of course one of Jem's other books and um, I think it's her favourite and so then I felt like, oh, I've really failed now because we didn't talk about the moth, but there was much we didn't talk about and uh, that happens to be uh, a a favourite of hers, but you know He's done a lot of work over the years and we didn't talk about his trip to New Zealand which he uh, also produced work from. So anyway, I guess what I'm trying to say is you can't cover everything but it was an absolute delight to get Jem on. I'm so glad he came and talked to me. Important voice to add and I hope you enjoy this chat I had with Jem Salem. I was wondering about What's the rhythm of your, of your week at the moment um, in terms of you know, getting out there with the camera? Do you have a sort of routine that you're following?
2: Well, for the last 11 years, I suppose it is, I've been photographing the passage of winter. The first of those became the River Winter, the book I published with Mac uh, about 10 years ago. And to my surprise, once I'd finished that, I started again the next winter and then the next winter. And I did four more winters using a 108 camera. And then, for a series of bizarre reasons and coincidences, which we might touch on, I moved over to working digitally. And for the last seven winters, I've been making a piece of work on the river near here. So I've just, I'm, I'm in the middle of my seventh year. Um, of, that, of that body of work, mm. which involves me visiting the river at uh, in the dark before dawn and witnessing, experiencing a dawn about 40, 50 times a winter. Uh, that's, that's one of the things that I'm doing at the moment. Unfortunately, this winter has been such a bizarre winter. In Devon, where I live, we've had three frosts mm. and hardly any rain, and the river is very, very low. And what I photographed there is not there anymore. So I haven't been. This is this is this is my. I'm, I'm fading out of this this piece of work. So that's one of the one of my regular. About three times a week, I've been going down there, uh, and then I, I I I make other other pictures. Uh, I've just bought a new camera, which I'm beginning to explore using. Going out. And about I, I go out about twice a day for short walks locally. I live in the middle of a city, small city, Exeter, and I I just go out and walk around.
1: Mm, and now you've got a book forthcoming. Stanley Barker going to yeah. um, publish uh, Four Winters, so that that would be the work that you yeah. Know, we're that's now the work along the river. Yeah. Yeah. But it never ends, though. You still can. You are still sort of, you know, you are not. You are not. Uh, there is no end point in the sense that you, once you've um, come to a, a, a place where a book is is imminent, you are continuing to work on on those things in a way.
2: Yes, if if we could step back a bit in time yeah. wise. Okay. Oh, please. Yeah. So one of one of the I, I I I go right back. So I finished studying at the London College of Printing in nineteen seventy two. And left with absolutely no idea how to how to become a, a photographer I wanted to become at all. I didn't take a picture for two or three years. Um, There's no role models. I mean, you know who do who do you know who do, who do want to follow? Uh, and slowly I began to began to make work. And as soon as I did, I started making a series of pictures which were on show in Bristol last year, which again will turn into another book later on this year hopefully with RRB books which was a series of pictures of the docks in Bristol which were at the end of their working life and prior to obviously being redeveloped and during the making of that work I developed what I call my metho- methodology quite inadvertently wasn't deliberate and this is what's carried me forward for the next you know 40 odd years and basically I somehow or other become attached to a site and they can be very small, very large. It can be as small as a pond or as large as a, a 50 miles of, of, of coastline. And I, I become attached by making a picture. And then sometimes I go back to these sites and I make another picture. And once I've got a second picture, i realized, wait a minute, there's a piece of, a piece of work to be made here. And so my, my works are all an, exp- an exploration of a relationship with, a, with, with, with each site. And each one has a different arc, a different journey. Uh, but the methodology is the same. I just go back and I, I'm, I, I keep making pictures. And, for instance, when the Red River was a, a site, one of the sites, the second second site I visited, I started working on after the docks were finished, the floating harbour in Bristol. And I finished taking pictures on that river in 1987. And the show... At Plymouth Art Centre with the curator Rosie Greenleaf took place in November of that year, and I thought that's all wrapped up. And then I moved from Cornwall to Devon to Exeter for a teaching job, and, and I never stopped going back to the Red River. I still go back now. That's the, you know, I, I'm still making work along the Red River. I still go back once a year, I go for a walk. So, although pieces of work come to a resolution. I realised that with one or two exceptions, my relationship with the sites is continuous. I never, I never really stop. Yeah, yeah. So, so yeah, seven, seven winters now on this 200 yards of riverbank.
1: Mm, mm. So, I mean, already that's thrown up so many sort of little threads that we, we could explore. It's really hard to know where to start in a way. But as far as Four Winters goes, what, what are the themes of this book then as far as you're concerned?
2: Well, one of the things I've realized as I've been making work over the last few years is that one rarely fully understands what one's making work about while one's making the work. Mm. So I would be slightly hesitant at this stage to to sort of definitively sit down and say, this work is about that. Um, But I could say a few things about it. It's about me being, becoming an, an old man, unfortunately. It's about aging process, a response to that. Uh, it's a lot to do with loss, both, both personal, specific, and, and sort of generic loss. But basically, it, it's about throwing away a lot of what I've been trying to inculcate into the students I've been working with over the last sort of 40 years. Which, which involves me just so basically what I do is I go to the riverbank, I decided one evening, and I tell the story in the book, which I'm not going to tell here, You have to buy the book to read the story. Mm. Um, I go to the riverbank with a small, stony, extraordinary piece of technology camera, A7R2 camera, and I stand there and I wait for something to happen to present itself to me and and so I'm sort of in the world Mm. and I'm experiencing it's you know following a momentary experience is of a dawn so the 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 the, the river winter which as I said earlier on was was about the how to photograph the passage of a winter which is something we can't we experience it but we can't kind of in a sense recognize that experience Mm. and so this I've carried on so I'm following the journey of, of a winter, the passage of a winter, where a winter starts, where a winter finishes, what is what is winter? All of those questions are sort of circling around, and and then I'm following the arc of each 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 dawn as it um, unravels. So it's mm. it's about being in the world with a camera, and uh, in an extraordinary spot. So I've got a philosophic premise, which is for me anyway. I sort of philosophic with a small p which is that the world is as remarkable outside the window that I'm looking out at, at the moment as it is at the top of any mountain or in any, any desert. So basically, all one needs to do is to open up the front door and step out into the world and, and, and wherever you are is just as rich and as complex mm. and as extraordinary as anywhere else. So going to one place, 200 yards of riverbank, seven years, every, every day is a, is a unique experience. The work's actually called A Bend in the River, because that's where I go to one bend. But the book with, with, with Sandy Barker is four of these winters. And um, the, the thing we haven't mentioned, or I haven't mentioned so far, is what makes this particular spot so extraordinary is about one or two hundred wildfowl, swans, geese, ducks, are at the site most, most days when I go there. And so I'm sharing the experience of waiting for a new day with this collection of, of birds.
1: Mm.
2: I'm photographing them.
1: It's unavoidable to to think that that's a beautifully kind of meditative way to start your your day. There, there's something you know very romantic about it. It's un, for sure. It can't be avoided. I mean, are there times when you just don't want to go, but you go anyway? Is there is there a a sort of self discipline to your to your practice that's important to you?
2: Well, I've got to wake up. I mean, fortunately, one of the, one of the good things about winter is that obviously the dawns are much later in the day than they were. If I was doing this subject in midsummer, I would be getting up at three, half past three in the morning. Hmm. So yeah, I'm getting up in the getting up in the dark, you know, three or four times a day. Sometimes in the cold, yeah, going out. Sometimes, you know, I get my feet quite wet, uh, and it's muddy and it's cold and so on. But as soon as I – I have to drive there. It's about three or four miles away. As soon as I'm there, I mean, uh, you know. Yeah. Um, no, no, no. I don't have – it's just such a rich experience.
1: Incredible. Yeah. Um, but, but you talk about, you know, not having to go anywhere. In fact, you, the ultimate sort of expression of that idea, really, you shot your own back garden at one point. yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. But yeah. there's something about these kind of incremental, gradual – changes to a to an environment that that fascinates you can you talk a little about that
2: well yes the garden is a is a, I think it's about 15 17 years of looking down the garden from the um, kitchen sink just looking out the window one day i looked out the window and just thought i have to make a picture so i ran upstairs got hold of the the camera 240 lens, made a picture out the window and that went into a frame and up on the wall and then as I was saying before uh, maybe a few months later I was looking out the window again and said, hey uh, I'm going to make another picture and I did a second one and that's when I realised, okay I'm going to keep going with this and that 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 became uh, uh, I mean, one of the things about working like this is that you have these incremental changes but what you're really doing is you're exploring your relationship with this site so the garden that I photographed my wife and I, my wife Jenny and I moved into this house when we had our second child because we wanted a slightly larger garden, both of us were very fortunate to grow up in houses with nice big gardens behind them we wanted that for our children Uh, my father and my mother, my father fed birds in our garden and Birds were very important to him. And I feed birds in my garden. My mother was a very keen plant grower. And so I started thinking about my relationships with my parents because of, this was partly what drove me to, to have the garden that we had. And then in this garden were the bits of furniture, the swing and so forth, that we provided for our children to play. And as the series evolved, slowly those pieces of furniture disappeared because they grew up Mm. and so it was about that sense of the loss of 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 the, the wonder of you know early childhood and then I started having a few minor kind of arguments with some of my neighbors as one does about trees and plants and so on and so it became a meditation on one's relationship with the, the, you know, the world around the garden. I mean, we've got an interesting situation down there at the moment in that, so we feed the birds, we love having the birds, and a few years ago, about five, six years ago, um, a badger started sort of coming into the garden. We have a railway line behind us. <laughs> and we thought, oh, amazing, isn't this, this is wonderful, a badger? The badger has now started digging dozens and dozens of holes in our garden every night. It's a nightmare. And so... The project then becomes uh, about that tussle with the world, both the natural world, with one's neighbours, with sort of society. The unpacking of of the density of what goes on in such a small site, and by working very, very slowly, all of that that incredible, you know, so compost of, of, of thoughts and ideas which become embedded in a piece of work. Yeah, and I find that that that's that's an incredibly rich and stimulating way to make pictures
1: yeah well what i love about it is that you are sort of documenting like you say these relationships these changes in in, you know life changes in the sense of you know the 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 growing up of of children stuff but there's no people at all you don't need to show that you're showing just one environment
2: yeah there is one picture i mean i've never done anything with this work um there is one picture right at the end where i i took a picture of my wife and, and our two daughters sitting in the garden. But that's it. Yeah, no, no. I I, I eschew people in most of my pictures.
1: Mm, of course, yeah, yeah. And so, because um, you say, like the process of developing a piece of work is led by the place itself. Yeah.
2: Um, and by the photographic medium's relationship with that with that place. Because mm. if I went there with a the sound recording equipment or with a sketchbook or whatever, I would make my relationship would be different so it's it's very much about the way that photography itself leads one on a journey mm-hmm.
1: i heard you say something about um and i'm not sure which work you were referring to i thought it might be four winters but you were talking about it in terms of it being to some extent about hope
2: yeah no i said that about four winters yeah so as I said, the lost side of things will 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 come out when the book comes out. Um, yeah, well, uh, without hope, we wouldn't be here as a as 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 a, as, a, as a species would be. I mean, we we just have to hope that the world's going to be a bit better. And each morning we wake up, and all of us, I think, just hope that maybe today will you know be a bit better. So so for me, experiencing a dawn is is revisiting on a daily basis the 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 idea of you know cherishing hope and one of the things that's so fascinating about sharing the experience with all these birds of course is that they don't have that you know a swan or a group of swans basically wake up stretch preen feed socialize get ready for the day and then off each day is just an, an you know another 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 day they have no sense of you know continuity or time as far as we're aware um beyond just here's, an, here's another day but for us uh, dawn carries carries hope so, yeah yeah so the works also yeah it's, it's about hope i mean they're very very i hesitate to say it myself i mean they're very beautiful pictures mm. um
1: i think you can the say line. that <laughs> yeah okay i mean subjectively yeah. uh, true
2: the thing that's funny about the series though is as i said i've, I've just finished f- last winter was the fifth winter which isn't in the book because we'd started the book before then so the book is the first second third fourth winters um and each day the idea is that i come back with at least one picture each winter i make a completely new piece of work i'm in the same place same birds, same river, same methodology, but each each year I make a new piece of work. So one of those pieces of work is called 40 Dawns. I just went 40 times and it's just a power dawn. And when I sh- I've shown a few people, Martin Parr was the person who basically got behind this work in the most extraordinary way. He's, he sent me an email or rang me up one day and said, I hear you're making pictures of the you river. Know, I want to see them, you know, kind of. <laughs> oh, okay, Martin, you know. So I took a box to show him. Thinking, what on earth, Martin, going to make of this work? He's you know, so far away from what I understand is interested? And in, you know, I showed him the pictures, and the pictures are extraordinarily repetitive, you know. Um, and we went through, and you know, I can see when people get past twenty, they start speeding up, you know. A bit. Anyway, he uh, he finished the the part. He went all the way through, and I said, well, "What do you think, Martin?" He said, "I am going to buy a set and we'll do a show." You know, I mean, literally <laughs> like that. And from that, an exhibition, which unfortunately didn't happen last year because of the the, the pandemic, should have taken place at the Royal West of England Academy as part of the Bristol Photographic Festival last year. An amazing event. Um, And that's now being delayed until 2023. And the book was due to accompany that. So the book will be coming out in a few weeks' time. Hopefully it's just about to go on press. Anyway... The pictures are remarkably repetitive, and I love every single one. I've got hundreds of them, but, but um, most most people can cope with about 10 or 15 or 20 before they start moving it through a
0: bit quicker. Mm.
1: But, you know, it's interesting because I wrote this down, and I was thinking about this, uh, that, you know, a lot of people would just see repetition and that you know obviously you're aware of that but there's something else that you're seeing or that you're you're encouraging the viewer to see there's something that you 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 know is a challenge ah. to you in a sense yeah no absolutely because i mean each dawn is a unique experience mm. you know you
2: never this this dawn the behavior of the birds the grouping of the birds the light the position of the river each day the river's a very volatile river so that it's rising and, and and lowering on a daily basis which whichever direction the winds coming from the surface is disturbed in a particular way it's flowing in a particular way around this bend yeah lights different so each day is an absolutely unique moment and and i want to treasure that
1: Mm. well i'm thinking even more so though of things like you know with the painter's pool where you're photographing Mm. a a wood Mm. and and there you really have got you know very tiny differences Mm. between one frame and another and yet, you know, the, I guess the fascination is in those tiny differences, or in that, that kind of visual complexity, in, in a way.
2: I mean, that, that's made with a 108 camera. So when you when you when you when you are looking through the ground glass screen of a 108 camera, that experience is one of the wonders of photography. As For as mm. example, nothing looks quite so fantastic as a, as the back of a great big you know plate camera. Uh, so the actual experience of, of, of seeing the birds, and of course, when you're looking through a camera, you're looking through with the lens wide open. So you're not seeing really quite what the photograph is going to see. So that going going back to Winogram, you know, that's what. So one of the things that's so fabulous about sort of working kind of photographically. Is that until one actually gets the negative and then makes a contact print, one hasn't actually seen the picture. Mm. Uh, because when you stop down all the way down to 45 or wherever it is with a with a plate camera, you can't see, you know, particularly in a dark wood, you can't see what's what's in front of you. So that, that work is about that, that 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 sort of endless sort of fascination and the slow transition. But one of the things I, I kind of remind myself as much as I can, and I frequently I try and talk about this every time I give a talk to students, is that actually what fascinates us is the making of each picture. You know, one one has to forget the fact that this is for a moment going to be part of a series. But actually here I am standing in the world with this camera in this spot. And the challenge I have at this moment in time is to make one picture. And 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 then the, the work the work grows and those small transitions happen but but yeah i don't mm, know if that answers mm. your question sorry yeah yeah, yeah no there. absolutely
1: anyway, yeah. no not at all no that's exactly what you're here for um so i mean uh, to go back again because you you sort of touched upon s- some of the kind of early uh stuff that you did and and of course the project that you're talking about the the bristol docks the floating harbour. Um, was black and white work but before I proceed you touched upon something or you said that there weren't really any role models and I was interested by that comment I would have thought there may have been some did you not have some early influences in terms of, of other photographers or even painters
2: well yeah clearly painters but I, I wasn't really thinking about them too much then That, that, that that's come along a lot more since then I studied between one thousand, nine hundred and sixty-nine, one thousand, nine hundred and seventy-two, at the London College of Printing, on a course called a Higher Diploma in Creative Photography, and uh, there were fifty students. Bizarrely, forty-six men and four women. It's a very strange and very different, you know, culture to photographic education now. And one of the things I and a few others asked our tutors quite regularly was, "What do you mean by creative photography? Because you're not interested in what we're doing. You don't appear to be interested in what we want to do." And what I think they meant by creative photography was effectively fashion and advertising They wanted to train people up to become assistants, to be part of that wonderful 1960s sort of London world. Uh, and so uh, there wasn't a lot of, it wasn't discouraged, but there wasn't a lot of encouragement for sort of what I felt I wanted to do, which, which was, uh, there were, uh, and during the time that I was a student in London, I saw two photographic exhibitions. As far as I'm aware, those were the only exhibitions on in London in three-year period, you know, it just shows you how much things have changed. And one of those was a Paul Strand exhibition, and one uh, was a, a, a Bill Brandt. And both of those two were enormously significant. I mean, Paul Strand, I think, in particular. So, so yes, you know, I, I had that, and then I, I was listening to your podcast with Paul Graham uh, recently. And Paul mentions Creative Camera. One cannot overstate the importance of that magazine for people like us during the late 1980s through the 1990s, because early on, that was the only place. There weren't photographic books. You know, you went to the library and there was, you know, 10 or 15 photographic books in the College of Printing library that weren't sort of technical manuals. Mm So there were no books, almost no books. And I couldn't afford to buy the tones that were coming out of America from, you know, the big museums anyway. But Creative Camera was the one place where you could go and see work. So I could see some pictures. But I had no idea how to become Paul Strand Or, you know, there was just, there was nobody in Britain. Tony Ray Jones, but I didn't hear of him until, you know, a few years after I, Mm -hmm. I graduated. I'm also a very slow learner. Uh, so you know, I'm not a particularly fast, precocious sort of you know learner. So it's take it took me a long, a long while to 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 sort of learn how to be the photographer that I wanted to be.
1: But was it always landscape for you that that was the fascination, or did that come later?
2: No, that was it was landscape, and it was English landscape, and actually it was in colour. I made a picture when I was a student of an apple, still-life picture. And when I was making that photograph with a plate camera, I decided to myself, I literally, I can remember now, I've still got this, you know, recall. I took the, stood back, took the cloth off the top of my head, and I said, this is what I want to be doing for the rest of my life.
1: Wow, you yeah, remember that, actually? Oh, one. yeah, yeah,
2: this apple basically stood in for the colour of the English landscape. It was a sort of, you know, metaphorical kind of emblem. And I, when I left, I did start working a bit in colour, on slide film, five-four slide film, and I just didn't like the results, yeah, mm. uh, you know, and I couldn't print them, so I, I abandoned that and I started, I, and I had this MPP five-four MPP camera, which I bought in about nineteen seventy-five, and then gradually, I started making a few pictures, and then, one day, this is how, I love the way that my work evolves. One day I was at work at the Unfeeny Gallery where I was was, was was working on on the narrow key in Bristol and there was this bloody great big row out the window and I looked out and a building across the way was being torn down by a JCB and some guys and I thought hey I'll just go around and take a picture of that before they, they finish the work. So I went round took about four or five negatives of, of this building just about before it was pulled down and when I walked back, I thought, wait a minute, this whole Dockland area is about to be, will be demolished in the next few years. Here we are. I've got, I, yeah, that was it. I, I discovered it, something that kept me going for six, seven years, mm-hmm. just in that one moment.
1: But you shot that in black and white, not in all black and white, yeah. Mm. And I would say
2: my my, my kind of, the Bechers,
1: yeah, mm. were, were, were sort of
2: who I was looking at particularly during that time. Yeah. And then during that time, of course... The Bechers were part of the um, uh, oh god, what's the name of that show in
1: America? New Topographic.
2: New Topographics the whole and then that just swept swept in.
1: Yeah, of course. So there yeah, was the, the the Americans were sort of there in the background, although like you say, you were interested yeah. in 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 you know your own document in your own country and 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 mm. is there a is there a difference there in terms of um approach to to landscape do you think between us and and the yanks and and the and the difference in the the reception of it
2: uh, well uh, everything the reception in america is has is, is and has been always very very different because they have far more sophisticated and evolved photographic culture than that we do here in Britain, in a way, I, I think. But one of the, the something that fascinated to me when I started going down to making pictures in Cornwall in colour was that I was just uh, so you know Robert Adams. I mean, so influenced by by Robert, Robert Adams' work, even though it was in black and white. And I I sort of, for a little while started wanting to make pictures that looked like Robert Adams' pictures. And then one day I was in Cornwall, and I thought, this is absolutely mad. You know, I'm here in this dank, dark, damp atmosphere. He's taking pictures 8,000 feet up in the Nevada. I'm an absolute lunatic. What I've got to do is to make pictures that are about the conditions that I live in here. Mm. And that was a tremendously kind of freeing kind of moment. And also being part of, I mean, I've, I've always, I think one of the most pleasurable profound and rich parts of my whole life as being part of uh, uh, a community a set of peers who who share my fascination with the photographic medium in Britain and 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 abroad and being part of at the time we actually were new color photography I mean that was really extraordinary Mm. and uh, there was a, a I mean, again, I talk about this. Don't people quite realize how much photographic culture has changed in this country since 1972? But in 1985, I think, Susan Butler wrote an article in Creative Camera about new British colour kind of photography. And she showed, you know, she talked about half a dozen people. who worked there. And at the end of it, in the last paragraph, she said something like, there are at least 12 people working with color, seriously, in Britain (laughs) at this moment, you know. Yeah. And and being part of that that, 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 and aware of what most of the others were doing was that it was a very, very stimulating, very rich, and we were making work influenced by but actually against that American tradition. And Mm. if you look across Europe, in Italy or in Germany at that time, through the middle of the 1980s, the Italians were sort of responding to new topographics, but in an Italian way,
0: you know, right. the
2: Germans were in a German way. So you can see the waves of that new topographic influence across Europe and probably further afield. But everywhere it happened, it took it, it, it went off in a different direction. I find that absolutely wonderful.
1: Yeah, it? yeah. Yeah, and it's amazing that, well, like you say, you could, those 12 individuals, you know, you could, uh, you know, familiarize yourself with the work of all those. But in fact, you probably, you know, get to know them all, Um, you know. A few of them have actually
2: disappeared by the wayside, unfortunately. Yeah, yeah.
1: inevitably, I suppose. Yeah, Yeah, But then this thing, this transition or this kind of important moment where you sort of abandoned any attempt at working with transparency because that very sort of saturation that people look for with with tranny um was the one thing you didn't want i presume it was it was the opposite of what you were looking for mm. so you wanted a more sort of muted palette which is what negative was able to give you is that right
2: yeah and, and particularly i mean one of one of the things that i found so sad having you know worked for the last 30 years is that the the VPS film that one was using in the early nineteen eighties was an absolutely fabulous emulsion, you know. and then gradually Kodak and Fuji. I'd never used Fuji film; I always used Kodak film. Gradually, Kodak have sort of evolved their their, their films and made them harder and harder and and, and crunchier and crunchier, to the point where I can I you know I found I was really struggling to make make pictures in the last few years. I think mm. that, you know. Uh, and but that, that, those those VPS films I used to, the Red River was done on a six, seven, and a five, four camera. Those wonderful cloud belt machinas that we we, we started using in the 1980s, and yeah, beautiful, soft Mm response to the conditions that I was living in.
1: Yeah, it's so fascinating that the chemistry has such an impact because I I don't know anything about this stuff, but I was at an exhibition recently, uh, Helen. wow yeah exactly thank you Mm. Helen Levitt and and looking at her color work and talking to the person I was with and thinking that just that the quality of the color is so distinctive and and particular to that time and and of course yeah it must be some something to do with yeah it would know, have, the, would
2: have been. i've got no idea what she used but one of the great early color colour photographers
1: yeah colour i think I she was that. working with transparency and then okay. and there's all that sort of dye transfer stuff going on and all that stuff that people talk about which again i mean I, all the people who are familiar with you know th- th- those processes would you know, my mm. listeners will be incredibly knowledgeable about that, some of them. I think um, also
2: she lost a lot. Did, did she, either in a fire, I think she might have had a break in at her apartment and, and someone stole huge yeah, amount
1: of that, colour work. Yeah, that sad. rings a bell. Yeah, because the, 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 the exhibition I saw, which was at the Photographer's Gallery here in yeah. London, was, um, that was the only disappointment, really, which is there wasn't much colour. It was it was mostly the black and white. Um, but that, that might well explain it. Just maybe I there isn't that much. I think
2: that's what happened, yeah.
1: Yeah. So was was Re- was the Red River your first sort of big kind of colour project?
2: Yeah, I did one small one before that uh, in Bristol, which was a, which was a uh, which which has never which actually was uh, showed about ten pictures in 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 Bristol mm. in some context, maybe the Watershed Gallery with Debbie Ealy in the nineteen eighties. But yeah, it was the first first significant piece
1: of colour mm. work. Can you tell tell me a little bit about that and how that project came about?
2: Well, I, 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 as I said earlier, I was working as a graphic designer and photographer at Arnolfini Gallery for about six or seven years, which was a fabulous, fabulous time. Uh, and Paul Graham was was working there as well in the bookshop, and so he was stacking the bookshop with all these extraordinary books. Oh, that he was I wish I had a time machine;
1: I could go back. Oh, to, no, that was yeah, just uh, such to a find you and time. Uh, Graham. Yeah,
2: yeah. And, and I and we and I, I set up a small. Have you ever heard about the little gallery I set up with a friend?
1: Uh, no, tell me. Oh right, oh was. Well, oh no, I, I, I've, heard, I've heard you. I've heard you mention it in, in the yeah. process of, yeah. of preparing. This, but this, tell this me, bizarre name. So, so
2: I, I left the London College of Printing, moved back to Bristol, my home city. Didn't know anybody. I'm no no photographers, at all. Just on my own. Uh, saw one exhibition of photography by a peer of mine, which was by a man called Martin Parr again, which was the Arnold His degree show. Some or other got into Arnold Anyway, one day I was in a pub and looked across the room and there was a face I recognized. It was a man called Adrian Loveless who'd been in the year above me at the London College of Printing. And we just gosh, another photographer. So we we, we became friends. And for some reason or other, we we rented a couple of rooms above a cafe called the Rainbow Cafe in Clifton. They had a dark room and we didn't quite know what to do with them. And I said, why don't we open up a gallery? and Adrian, uh, so we, we eventually opened up this gallery, and we couldn't think up a name for it, so in the end, it became The Photographers Above the Rainbow. Right. And the, just the two of us, and we ran it for about four or five years, and the shows were just really kind of, you know, pretty wacky, pretty eclectic. Martin's mm. just Martin's foundation is just a quite, Adrian died about four or five years ago, and I found amongst his his children asked me to go through his photographic belongings and I found all the posters for, for, that we made for the shows. It's a very, very weird set of exhibitions. Um, and anyway, we, we we opened up this photographic gallery and there were just the two of us. And the very first Saturday suddenly we knew 20 other photographers. Everybody in a gallery, you know, Bristol. Mm. And then people started saying to us, could we use the darkroom?" And then we set up, a. a we ended up very quickly, setting up a sort of a, a system whereby we had about eight or ten people who used our darkroom. Anyway, we ran this <coughs> this gallery for about five or six years with this supported by this group of uh, friends, unpaid. I think we once got two hundred fifty quid from the local arts council to sort of make some changes, but we funded it all ourselves. Wonderful time. <coughs> and Paul. Turned up one day and, and joined and brought his colour enlarger along. So we, we, you know, he very kindly allowed me to use that. So that's how I started printing in colour. Mm-hmm. Then I went down to Cornwall to start my teaching career and was living with my brother in Campbell. And one day went out for a walk with his dog and came across this red stream flowing through. I was looking for a subject. I knew I wanted to photograph something which would take me on a physical journey. So the work that I was making in Bristol in the nineteen early nineteen eighties in colour was a study of the two railway lines, branch lines that go along the Avon on either side of the Avon. Uh, so I found this river and I thought, well, here we are. This is the subject. You know, I'm going to f- make a piece of work about the source to the sea. Literally, you know, at that at that moment that 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 realisation came, and that took five or six years of just going out and walking along the river
0: and exploring mm-hmm.
1: it. Mm. Again, I mean, i kind of onto the question of, of, of the themes that then emerged, you know, as far as that work went. Um, I, I've heard you talk about, um, you know, narrative myths and, and that um, kind of thing. I um, also like the, the, the term that you used, uh, local distinctiveness, um, which is, you know, something I'd never really heard before. And maybe you could expand on, on a couple of those things
2: okay uh I, as you probably realized i i do tend to sort of wander around a lot when when, when in a conversation
1: yeah me um, too Me too. yeah
2: okay well the, f- the first thing i well one of the early things i decided when i started photographing the river was and this has been fundamental to my sort of career ever since then was that i'm not a polemicist
0: mm. and
2: i've got nothing to say i don't i don't think why should I have anything to say about the world that I want anybody else to sort of, you know, hear? You know, I, I'm not, so I'm, I could have made an environmental piece of work about that river because it was a highly polluted stream. But I decided I didn't want to do that. And I thought, right, well, I want to make a series of pictures which have a number of concerns going through them. One, I want them to be interesting color pictures. Here am I. This is my first piece of work. I'm a new color photographer. I've got to say something about color. Mm-hmm. I've got to work and make these pictures interesting statements about what color can, can do. So part of that was responding to the conditions of light in Cornwall that I was, we were talking about earlier. So each picture basically had to be an interesting color picture. Secondly, it had in some way or other to describe the culture of this extraordinary valley that the river ran through. Quite extraordinary Piece of sort of mining, post mining. Well, that was still mine was still running. Land, land, landscape. So the pictures had to say something about that. Um, and then one day, I took a picture of a farmhouse. I talk about this in lectures. It was a, it was walking back home in the evening with the 5.4 MPP camera. I had a one fifty lens, and it was dusk. And there was this little farmhouse with a light shining in the window. And I put the camera up and I took a portrait of this house with the light shining out and went back home. And what I used to do was to go to Bristol every few weeks and process the film and then go into our darkroom at the Rainbow and uh, make a series of prints. And I was making a print of this picture and suddenly something started, you know, it, it stirred something in the back of my mind. And what it what it... What I when I thought about that was that I realised that it was stirring this this image which I carried in my in my imagination since childhood, which goes back to those stories coming out of northern European folk history of a traveller on a winter's night, going through a dark night and seeing a little light in the distance. And this picture just, I suppose, you know, metaphorically, musically strummed that 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 that, that string. You know, just hit that string. Mm. So it was about, it was this weird, weird, weird farm. But it was, it also did that. And then I began to realize that more and more pictures were operating on, this, on this, this level where they were basically triggering memory associations that went back to my fairly early childhood. And not just my early childhood, but our shared, you know, cultural childhood. Those of us who come out of a you know, northern European experience share a series of stories and what and, and I call a kind of myth. And I thought this would be a really interesting. I can I can explore this these these, these 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 narratives, not not going out saying right here's a story. Let's try and find a picture. But as I made pictures, they they basically let's go back to that metaphor. You know, they they the cello they strum the string of the cello. You know, they set off the the, the vibrations in my imagination. And so, the work also became. I wanted each picture to somehow or other open up something. Of, of in in that pack of narratives. So I called them myths and I broke the river down into seven geographic sections from the top to the bottom. And in each section I decided it would be interesting to kind of explore a, a, you know, a mythic idea. So the first section goes back to the idea of origins, Genesis, you know, the, 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 the beginning. And and as you go down, the second section is called the forest, which relates to our early ancestors. You know, arrival into the northern European post-glacial ice age era, and moving through these dark, dark forests full of wild, frightening kind of beasts. Um, and you know, a lot of, lot of, lot of folk tales and fairy tales and 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 mythic narratives and so on come from those those sorts of stories. And then one day, absolutely bizarrely, when I was sort of working on this, I discovered there was a bear, you know, living on the river. Mm-mm. And so, you know, this connection with, uh, with, with, with this forest and this bear, and it just, all these, these, these things started happening. It was, it was fantastic. And ever since then, the making of that work, uh, uh, that, that, that interest in how we carry these, these shared and individual stories through culturally from our very, very earliest sort of movements in, into, in, into Europe as, as a human, you know, species... How we carry all of those associations and memories, which I believe we do, and how they surface in the modern world Mm. and surface through the making of pictures has become one of the dominant sort of themes of my picture making.
1: Yeah, which is what I was going to say. I love the way that, you know, you you don't go in with any kind of predefined uh, idea of what anything's about. You let that, uh, you know, suggest itself in the process of making the images.
2: Yeah, it's much richer. I mean, if I if I was to just try and define something as okay, here's a set of parameters. I mean, I set very very tight parameters when I make work. Mm. You know, I said, right, well, I'm going to photograph this pond. I don't know how long it's going to take or what's going to happen when I've while I photograph the pond. I mean, the original painter's pool picture was was one picture. I just wanted to make a picture of a pool in a wood, mm. and then this story, this very sort of fairly very sad story, kind of evolved around it. Uh, about the man who created the pond uh, and what happened to him, um, and and so that that got wrapped up, and and so I don't. I it, life is far richer by just sort of opening up and, as I said, walking outside and 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 just seeing what
0: what
1: mm. what,
2: what, what takes you than it would be going with a set of. Uh, you know forward looking
1: uh, this is what I'm looking for yeah and sort of it, it, similarly I kind of love the way that you you say you're not a polemicist because I th- I think sometimes about you know working on photographic projects and and thinking oh am, am I supposed to have a point of view you know is it completely pointless somehow if I don't really necessarily know what you know my my message is here or whatever so it's very kind of reassuring to hear you say that yes that's completely fine and that you know one doesn't have to be trying to you know get some kind of uh, message across or yeah. or making some particular point with a with a body of work
2: well that's that's how i've had to that's how i've i've uh, well, that's what i've done mm. suits me
1: yeah well uh, and, and, if it's good and, enough for you it's good enough for yeah. me jim yeah okay <laughs> the river theme always um you know is always there and then you did the river winter mm. which kind of combines to the two things that we've sort of begun talking about but what is it about winter that appeals to you so much like do you ever shoot it in the summer
0: uh,
2: okay well i'm going to step back a little bit from that question but i won't not for too far please do uh, bodies of water No, oh, yeah rivers the coast ponds Pools, lakes, rivers, everything I've ever made, almost, has involved the proximity to water, and rivers have been part of that. In terms of winter, yeah, I, I've, I've thought about that um, uh, quite a bit, because, you know, people have asked me asked me that. First of all, in winter, um, you... The, the 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 trees are you know physically more you know a bare tree is actually you know graphically a more interesting thing to make a picture of than a full tree so that i think okay next and I'm, I'm wandering around here one of the hardest things to photograph if not the hardest thing to photograph are the subtleties of the color green as you know, dispersed through the English landscape because mm-hmm. they, they they are, you know, the the tens of thousands. When you're standing, the, the, the painter's pool, the man, Mike Garton, who created the pool, was a painter who I worked with at the Art College in Exeter when I was working here. And I sat down with him one day. This is how the work kind of happened. And he, he I, I sent him. "So he, he'd been going to this wood for 26 years, 365 days of the year to paint completely obsessive painter. And I said to him one day, what is it? What are you trying to get at? You know, Why are you doing this? And he said, what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to work out how an artist responds to the insane complexity of standing in the canopy of trees where you look up and there are tens of thousands, million, I mean, an oak tree has 10 million leaves on it. And each one will be at a different angle and a slightly different color and glinting, you know. So how you deal with green particularly with, with, with colour emulsions, is an absolute, you know, it's a difficult one. And so partly it's to avoid that problem. Partly it's because of this fascinating sort of, you know, the physical structure of a, of a, of a, of a scene with the leaves gone or partly missing is more interesting. But also it's to do with sort of colour sort of values, the softness, the dampness, the dankness, of an English autumn into sort of spring, is something that just hits my slightly melancholic frame of mm-hmm. mind. Perhaps
1: I was thinking about this because I was, I was wondering whether the the kind of collective national psyche of any given country is is influenced really by the kind of winters that that they have in that particular place, or, or perhaps the weather throughout the the whole year. But, is that something well, that you think about?
2: Yeah, a lot. I mean, uh, I mean, when I when I when I was doing the River Winter book, I, I said to Michael May, you know, I want an essay in this book because one of the things I've been thinking about during the making of this work, that work started off by asking myself two questions. The first question was, what is a river, and maybe we'll get on to that, but probably not, because that led to about five or six years of work, which I've never done anything with, which were photographs of the river, and then on, and then out of that came this thing: what is winter? But when we, you know, if you say what, what is winter, it's a stupid question, really. What is winter? Because actually, you can't answer that question because winter is different, whichever part of the world you know. Japanese winter is different from an English winter, which is different from a Mediterranean winter, which is different from mm. a Scandinavian winter. What we consider winter is 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 that winter, those winters which evolved and developed in in the consciousness of you know from Boyle on in pictures in Northwest Europe, and and that 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 sort of study of what winter was so i i got an essay written by a friend of mine called richard hamlin about the 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 this this how our winters have have, have evolved through painting and through literature across northwest europe and it's a fascinating topic so yeah I, mm. yeah 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 and 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 unfortunately the winters that we're getting here in devon are it's getting less and less wintry, which is a bit of a problem.
1: Right. No yes. Snow.
2: My mm. friend Barbara Bosworth posted a picture on Instagram yesterday of uh, you know the the snow that's just fallen outside her studio in in, in Massachusetts. Mm. And one of the problems with Instagram is 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 for me is looking at all these fabulous sort of conditions that everybody is sort of you know experiencing elsewhere, and I'm stuck here looking at the sort of grey mud that. that is out the
1: window so in a yeah in a weird way you're sort of documenting climate change as well
2: yeah yeah absolutely
1: we could talk a little bit about what is a river i was fascinated by the way in which you came to that question um yeah explain it and talk about the the kids drawings
2: oh okay That's, it's a shame we don't have them so that that again one of these i mean how uh, I, I once did a show with martin barnes at the vna called the pa- a path to the path to a picture And one of the things I'm fascinated about is actually looking back, once a piece of work is underway, as to how it's arisen. The story, you know, how everything just comes about in my life anyway, is just through complete accident. So, I our our art college merged with Plymouth Polytechnic, and we had a new dean who told me to go down to a teacher training college in Exmouth to talk to some colleagues about how to build sort of uh you know, synthesis of our various sort of ambitions and i was sitting in a room with a painting tutor down in a teacher training college when one of his colleagues came in and he said oh jem this is elizabeth you'd probably be interested in having a chat with her because she, she she's a geographer who's interested in rivers so i asked elizabeth you know what what research she was doing i mean this is before we were all obsessed with research and she told me this, this this about this project which she'd been running for many years, where she'd been going into a classroom, a primary school classroom, and giving each of the children a piece of paper once a year and a pencil and just said draw a river. And she collected all of these drawings in. And what she was interested in was trying to see if she could detect through looking at these drawings the way that a child's mind developed a more sophisticated conceptual understanding of its relationship to the world through looking at the drawings that they made. And I just thought, wow, that is such a fabulous idea. And I parked that I said, right, okay, I'm gonna come back to that one day. And then one day, a couple of friends of mine, Nicholas Alfre, who's an art historian who I've been working with on the, on the, um, on the, the, the Swan winter, winter work, uh, asked me to give a talk uh, uh, in, in Nottingham to a group of cultural geographers about rivers and I thought oh I'll go back to this so I went out onto the, our street here in Exeter got hold of seven or eight kids gave them a piece of paper and just said draw a river and I got these seven drawings and they're extraordinary mm. I still show them in talks they're mm. absolutely extraordinary on all sorts of levels um one of the things that's so fascinating is that almost every single one of them starts the river on the top right hand corner of the paper and then draws a line down to the bottom left and then goes back again and then draws another line down to the bottom left and they diverge so the river gets wider so the rivers mm. all come in that direction now, why that is you know i don't know mm. they all have turbulence they all you know and uh the, a lot of the drawings have these little round things dotted around the edges of the river and i spent a while wondering what on earth are these things then i realized they were stones uh-huh. and that they weren't just stones but living in Exeter, middle-class families, the rivers that you would see were basically probably rivers, Dartmoor streams that you'd be taken to at the weekends when you went walking with your family. So these children were drawing partly from experience, but partly also from other images, going back to this idea of the mythic narratives that, you know, the stories that we we carry with us, which are generated through texts and through poems and through pictures and paintings and films and so on. So there was this, amalgam of all these strands in their imaginations and then i started thinking about the fact that and i mentioned this to this this group of cultural geographers um that if you think about if someone asks you what is a river that there is no one place in your mind where what a river is is neatly parked up as a series of sort of neurological things okay Mm. just that's not how the brain works basically if someone says what is a river to you the actual mode of answering that question defines what a, what the answer is so if you start drawing you you know drawing takes you 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 know if you're a cartographer you would start doing a map if you're using words you would start you know using words mm. so i realized that, that there is no you know knowledge is not something that is neatly parked in our brain it's an active process of, of articulation and from that, I decided to make a piece of work called What is a River? Through the action of making a series of pictures of a river, mm, which mm. I found, and so I used my local river. And that took me about four or five years. I never finished it because it morphed into the River Winter, which became okay. a more interesting question.
1: Right, right, okay. So I've
2: got I've got four or five years of those pictures, ten, eight pictures parked somewhere. other have never done anything with them.
1: Well, let's talk about ponds then, because I wanted to... Mm. Uh, um, Um, touch on ponds um what what you describe, i heard you describe as the most important piece of work you've ever done is about a pond and i don't think that's actually ever really been uh, published anywhere but i wanted to ask you about what interests you about ponds and then and then about that specific um um, piece of work that you did
2: right i'm going to try and answer this quickly but it's going to take a while yeah yeah (laughs) and it's another one of these weird journeys Post the Raft of Carrots, which we haven't talked about, mm-hmm. there's one picture in the Raft of Carrots, which I made walking on a beach here in South Devon, which was taken at the bottom of a cliff, where a cliff joins a, a beach, where a beach pushed a shingle beach is pushed up against a cliff. And I got very interested in this tiny space where, where a cliff and a beach hit one another. And after I finished the Raft of Carrots, I started going to these places and trying to make pictures with a 6-7 camera, as I'd done uh, before, of this space. And one of the things I was very interested in was was where a stone had fallen off the cliff and had hit the beach and created a little crater. So I I got very interested in, okay, this is something we haven't talked about, one of the main influences in my life is land art. Mm. So... I regarded these craters as sort of involuntary pieces of land art, these incredible sculptural forms where something hits the earth. And you take that and then extrapolate out. And of course, the really extraordinary pieces of land art are where meteorites have hit the earth and created these vast, great craters. And so I got interested in in meteorites. And then one day I stepped back with a plate camera. Instead of photographing a little mark where a, uh, a... a stone hit the beach, I started taking pictures of rock falls where whole cascades had come down. So that's how the rock falls developed. And as I was making those around 1990, 1992, 1993, I suppose, or four after, after Carrots, I started reading about uh, some theories that, that um, bizarrely, at the time, dinosaur extinction was the result of a meteorite hit. A, 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 a geologist was trying to put this forward at that time and he was completely and utterly sort of shut out
1: oh the really oh yeah i started. thought that was uh universally
2: accepted so it, it, it is now mm. but then something even more extraordinary happened and that was that uh, that president um reagan suddenly started getting very kind of uh anxious about meteorites and the american nasa in america set up a, uh, a project called the Search for Dangerous Rocks—I think they called it—and um, and and then Reagan started initiating a whole series of um, huge, great sort of military plans to build new spacecrafts with sort of to basically right. It's
1: called Star Wars. Star Wars, uh, right?
2: Now, why? Why this is this is what gets so extraordinary? Because although I'm not a polemicist, you know, this is buried in the work. Why did Nixon start the Star Wars program? Not Nixon, Reagan. Uh, uh,
1: Reagan. Do you know the answer? No, tell me. Berlin Wall. Okay. Yeah, I knew it would would have to do something about, uh, it would have to do something to do with the sort of communist, you know, paranoia about...
2: Yeah, paranoia. So basically, when when the Berlin Wall came down, the American state had no way of scaring the American population into building up the military, you know, might of the country. Because there's no threat anymore. Right, right. We need a new threat. We need fear to basically instill into our population so we can encourage them to invest in our military. And so I think the whole Star Wars project was basically that. That's interesting. Uh, anyway, my, 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 my I'm, I'm sure I'm not the only person. Anyway, I got very interested in this idea of craters. And then, of course, that led to Ponds. Of course. That's a long, long sort of no, journey. No, no, I But how do like these that. things happen? And so I started making a series of portraits of individual ponds, the best known of which is the one, the dew pond, that is on the Sussex Downs. And uh, then, uh, so the ponds started off as a series of individual portraits. I wanted to make 10 portraits. I had this idea of a show of 10 ponds. I walked into a room, these 10 huge, great, you know, ten-eight enlargements of just individual ponds. And perversely, as life is, I took one picture of a pond uh, in a little village near here. And then I went back and to take another picture. This is where these stories start. And as I was setting up my ten-eight camera beside this pond, this guy came up and said, what on earth are you doing? <laughs> because you know, people are not used to seeing a ten-eight camera. I said, well, this is a camera and I'm taking a picture. And he said, why? And I said, well, I, just, it's a nice pond, you know, interesting space. And I said, well, what are you doing? And he said, well, I live next door, and this pond was a dump. And it was an absolute tip, this pond. Literally, it was a tip. People dumping stuff in it, farm sewage and everything. And he said, I've got the permission of the local landowner, and what I'm planning to do is I want to transform this pond into something you know, nice. And I said, well, what's your vision? And he described his, his, his ideas to me. And as he did so, the hairs on the back of my neck stood up because what he was describing was an Arcadian realm. So here we go back to this idea that comes out of the Red River in terms of how these stories about the world,
1: mm.
2: an Arcadian vision...
1: Just explain briefly it. what that is, in case people don't really know well, what an Arcadian well, realm
2: is. Well, it comes out of, kind of you know, Virgil and Milton, this idea of a, of, 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 of a world. So he described he wanted to basically put barrels of trees with... with, with uh, Little little tracks going through. them. He wanted to wild wildflowers. He showed me where he was going to put a bench so he could watch the sun come up in the morning, and where he was going to put a bench to, to watch the sun go down in the evening. This idea of creating a a, a you know a sort of a, a semi-fictional golden age of, of yeah, of, a kind of, of mythic mythic environment. mythic space. And I thought, wow. I said, would you mind if you could I come back here and take take pictures while you do this? Because what I'd be photographing was somebody trying to create. In the world around them, one of these sort of mythic spaces. And I thought, what a subject. Mm. So I spent three years going back every now and again, not, 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 not that often, because I was working full time and had a young family. And after three years, I had about 18 pictures. There was no, again, there's no method. I don't, I don't go back once a month, I just go back when I go back. And I was very, very excited by this work. And then the guy disappeared, mm. left the village. And I thought, down, you know, that's that's okay, I've got 18 pictures, that's nice and then something amazing happened a few months later, I went back and somebody else was starting to work around the pond, but I immediately realised that they were bringing a different vision so I met this guy and I said do you mind if I, he knew I would be taking pictures I said, do you mind if I carry on taking pictures and he said, fine, he wasn't he, the first guy and I got on really well we had a group, became buddies second guy couldn't really wasn't bothered with that, but he didn't mind me taking pictures, but he brought a totally different vision. So in this piece of work, which is called the Pondered Upton Pine, which has only ever been shown in its entirety once here in Exeter and seen probably by, you know, one or two thousand people. Although I've had some shows of a few quite a few shows of a few pictures in America, East Coast of America, you have these two two arcs of story as these two individuals try to make the world Try to turn the world into their vision, and of course, being humans, they fa- we fail. You know, we, we 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 you know the pathos of watching somebody trying to create Eden outside their front door and fail, just through his own hands. You know, was was it's a it's a very powerful mm-hmm. allegorical piece of work, right. and the, and and the pond itself has a very interesting history. So you've got that history, which goes back to the Industrial Revolution. It was a manganese mine. So a lot of the work I've made comes out of the Industrial Revolution, and in uh, and, and a sense of Blakeian vision of, around that. Um, mm. And and yeah, that's. Uh, yeah. That, and then when I finished that, I started the painter's pool.
1: Are you tempted to revisit that place to see how the how the pond is now? Because you know, I'm assume, assuming it you know may have changed yet again.
2: It has. I went back there a few weeks ago. However, that's one of the few sites that I've determined that I would not photograph. And the story behind that slightly bizarre in that when I finished the work, I decided that it would be nice to show it locally. So I went to our local museum here in Exeter. The, the director said she would be very happy to show the work. But there was one issue, and that was that uh, the man who owned the land upon which the pond sat was on her board of governors. And she would have to have his agreement for it to be shown, so I wrote to this guy, I won't tell you his name, because I had a slightly strange relationship with him, and said, I've been photographing your pond, it's a positive piece of work, looking at how, you know, somebody wants to make the world a better place, we want to show it at the local museum, are you okay with that? And he wrote back and said, hmm, I think we need a phone call. So I rang him up, and at this man's family had been sitting on the estate that the pond's on. For a thousand years, it's, it's, a, it's a huge, huge estate um, given to his ancestors by William the Conqueror, I think. Um, and he was sort of, he was an old man at the time. He was reasonably congenial and we had a three or four minute conversation and then there was a pause and I knew what was coming. And so he said, so you've been photographing this pond from the road. And I said, no, I've." and he just went, completely ballistic you you know i mean he was just swearing and screaming and shouting down the phone telling me how disrespectful abuse i mean really and um he he tried to stop me showing the work Mm. and i said in the end i I met his son rather than him because he got ill and his son said we don't want you to show this work um And I knew why not, because basically this this pond was an absolute nightmare, and they couldn't give a toss about the fact that it sat in the middle of a village. I mean, it was as far from what a village pond should be as it possibly could be.
1: Right, right.
2: And I said, why why, why don't you want me to show the work? Because obviously he couldn't admit that reason. No, exactly. He said, we're we're worried about art tourism. We're worried if people see these pictures, they'll want to come and visit the site, and, and it's a dangerous site, and so on and so forth. Anyway, we we, we we agreed to the show, as long as I didn't mention the name of the, the village. Right, right. And, and I said to him, look, you can stop me showing these pictures here, but I'm going to show these pictures around the world. Mm. You know, these pictures are going to be seen everywhere. <laughs> uh, and uh, so I decided not to go back.
1: Right, fair enough, Yeah. Well, so, I mean, I, I, we have to really talk about this transition that you've made to digital because, you know, we don't normally talk, talk about this, this kind of stuff. Um, but it's so important for you because, you know, I feel like, you know, you're, you're very much associated with, as we've talked about, you're, you know, uh, an analog, um, a film process, a, a large, format process and here you are um now a sort of real convert to the to the digital which will upset the um the film purists among the listeners but um i love the fact that you've sort of embraced that and i wanted to, to, to hear from you a little bit about you know what that's been like has it has it changed the way you work or or, or the work itself or you know have you managed to just continue to work you know in in, in, well, in as much the same way as possible
2: in, in some ways, yes. It, it, if we go back to that picture of an Apple that I took when I was at college looking through a ground glass screen, one of the things I realized is that I like looking at screens. Mm. So I, I, I have used... I mean, one of my favorite cameras was the Polaroid Makina, extraordinary piece of technology. The, the te- technology we use is absolutely kind of like each camera takes different pictures and we have to learn how to take different pictures with new pieces of equipment. So although I did a lot of pictures on 10-8, which I'm reasonably well known, for, you know, those are the pictures people know about. I've also continuously shot with a Pentax 67, But I take the Pentaprism off and I look down at the screen on the 6-7 and I love, love working. I've got lots of bodies, small bodies of work, which very few people have ever seen working with that, with that camera. So it's this idea of looking at a screen that's important. I wanted... And I hoped that I would be able to end my days as an analogue photographer. Mm. But a number of things happened. One was that, as I said to you earlier, that was becoming more and more difficult because the way film was going was just I wasn't getting the, the nuance out of film that in in, this, in the same way that I, I, I was before. I was also, uh, you know, a tutor. And and it got to a point where the most of the people that I was teaching were using digital cameras. I thought, I just can't. I've just got to get hold of a digital camera so that at least I can have some idea mm. as to sort of, you know, what they're going through. So that's why I bought my first digital camera, which was a most bizarre piece of equipment called a Sigma DP2. You ever
1: come across them? I seem to remember them, yeah, a little point-and-shoot yeah. one. Amazing. One of the most
2: extraordinary cameras I've ever used. I mean, the sensor and the lens on that camera are sensational, mm. absolutely sensational. But everything else to do with the camera is a nightmare. <laughs> Absolute nightmare. Anyway, I then moved on to a, a, a Sony A7R and an A7R two. And then something happened. I was with my friend uh, Stuart Smith in his house, visiting him, Stuart, Nano, one day, um, talking about a possible book. And I fell downstairs. I, I went oh head my first down their stairs. i have never done it. I mean, it would really, yeah, I could still sort of visualize it. 15 I don't know how many steps head first and fortunately I stuck my arm out and I landed on my left elbow completely smashed it to bits if I landed on my head I would no longer be here Mm. no doubt I would have killed myself but the left elbow was a bit of a mess and it, it involved surgery and various and I couldn't work with a plate camera for about you know six months five or six months I couldn't literally could you know I'm I'm not Joseph Sudek you know I couldn't work one arm with a plate camera so I started going out with this Sony and one of the things that I did with the Sony was that I could only work with it one-handed because I, I didn't have the other arm so I set the ISO up very high so that I wouldn't get any camera shake and I I, I, I looked at the screen on the back. I, I never look through the, the viewfinder of a digital camera. Very, very rarely at the viewfinder. I just look at the screen again. So again, I'm, I'm a screen photographer, and and that led to all of these pictures that I've been making ever since along the river and other bodies of work that I've made with the with the with the, with the Sony. And I mean, when I go out down to the river early in the morning, I start usually with an ISO of about 10,000. Mm. So I'm making pictures now at 20th, 15th of a second, wide open, 1.8 with the lens that I've got at 10,000 ISO.
1: So you're shooting in the dark, basically.
2: Yeah, yeah, I'm taking pictures in the dark of birds moving. Wow, yeah. Well, with a film camera. Yeah. So, so basically, it has opened up. A, a, an entirely new ability to render the world in a way that film could never, mm, never, even, even, you know. Yeah. So that's that. That's one of the really, uh, really. Extra, and 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 I've never, unfortunately, I've got a fridge downstairs, a freezer downstairs with a few hundred sheets of ten eight color film in it, mm, mm. and I hope one day to go back, but um, to using using that, but I haven't.
1: Because you said at one point that you know that one of the reasons you worked in ten eight was because it's difficult, because it's challenging, and that you know may- maybe if it's if it's if it's too easy, it might not be uh, quite as enjoyable. So have you have you sort of uh, rearranged your position on that now? Now that you're a digital convert, I guess you must have done by definition.
2: I suppose I have. I when I go out, I shoot quite a few pictures each morning with the idea of coming back with one. But on the other hand, I'm also photographing a very busy world hmm. with, with, with 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 everything kind of changing uh if anything was easy there wouldn't be any point doing it if you basically went to college and learned how to take good pictures and then just sort of went out and out into the world and just we all just made bodies of work then then our lives wouldn't i wouldn't be sitting here talking to you no,
1: exactly. you would be sitting here talking to everybody else you may whatever talk to, we use what was it who's who's it said you, you know if you once you get to that once I don't know something about you know if you if you reach any level of perfection you may as well cut your throat sort of thing. Absolutely
2: stop. Yeah, stop. Do something else. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I mean, it, and and for me, every single time I take a picture, it's an experiment. I don't know what's going to happen. Uh, I don't know how the mediums going to respond to a particular set of. Are you have an idea? It was a result of years and years and years of experience, but you don't know. Going back to those stopping down to the ten eight pictures I was talking about, the painter's pool. Every single exposure is an experiment. And that's just fabulously kind of exciting mm. to, to, to just approach the world in that kind of way. Yeah,
1: well, you have a whole new learning curve now to embark mm. upon you know, that you sort of went through with, with film and now yeah. you're going through again with digital.
2: So, yeah, so I, 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 I'm a convert. Mm. But, but uh, I, I would very happily, you know, uh, go back to, I mean, I one sided of me. I, I, my first time I ever showed, I had an exhibition, at a place called Hestacoon, which is a wonderful house in Taunton, where they have a visual arts programme, and I had an opportunity to show in a room there, and I showed three large ten eight prints on one wall, and four of the new digital winter pictures on the other. And I went into that room, and I'd look at the
1: digital pictures,
2: like, oh, I
0: don't like those, and I
2: turned round,
0: I'd ten out the wall.
2: I, wish I
1: could, you know. <laughs> I, just, I want to be. I want to be doing both things. Sure. Well, why not? Well, I'm. I'm looking forward to seeing the fruits of that labour in in that new Stanley Barker book when it when it appears. I think it's going to be around April that they finally.
2: Uh, uh, yeah, probably. Yeah.
1: Get it out. So that's going to be beautiful to really get properly uh, immersed in. Jen, we could have gone in so many directions. There's so much we didn't talk about. Um, you know, you've got so many. Uh, years of of work that um you know in the archive as it were but i think at least we um we certainly covered some of it and i and i want to kind of uh get on we're going to do the the bonus questions for the members but um in the meantime thank you so much it's been a real delight to have you join me Ben, ben i
2: i i enjoyed it very much thanks for asking